Good evening. It's good to see you. Very nice to be able to be together again uh, tonight. Uh, if you'll turn your Bibles over to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we are going to take a look at this text from verse 12 down through verse 19. As we get ready for what we will see here in this text, I think it is appropriate simply to begin by asking this question because it is the one that maybe we are uh, most familiar with right now when it comes to trials. When you look back two and a half years ago in March of uh, 2020, and everything just suddenly shut down and all the fears were going around and we heard of people dying all over the world uh, from uh, this virus. Uh, ask yourself this question, how well do you think you handled that? How well do you think you handled that particular trial? When you look back, would there be things that now you would see that might, you might do differently or uh, maybe, maybe some strength or boldness that you might have now that you didn't maybe have then? I think all of us could look back and say, yeah, there's some things that, that when I look at it, I, I was uh, maybe way overly fearful uh, I thought maybe more and more about my life and my physical life than I did about God's cause. Maybe there's some uh, questions about that in your heart and your mind and how you went through those things. Little things like this, and, and by the way, understand obviously that for somebody, for some people, uh, the that particular trial was very difficult. People lost. Uh, lost uh, family members and lives. For others, it was maybe more of a nuisance and and just uh, an inconvenience in some ways. But either way it was, it sent a small message to us. How strong am I when it comes to a sudden trial? Something that hits quick and hard and threatens life. We have not in America uh, come to a point where we are suffering more of a widespread trial, especially a trial that would come to Christians and especially Christians alone. And it is one of those things we need to be prepared for and we need to do better at being prepared for. I always think of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul used Epaphroditus along with Timothy and some others as examples of the way a Christian faces a trial. Epaphroditus nearly lost his life. He nearly died. And we say, well, yeah, you know, that, that, was a, that was a tough deal. No, think about why he nearly died. He nearly died trying to get to Rome and give support to Paul. And he wouldn't give up. And he nearly lost his life for it. And, and I saw people even during our little trial compared to what has been in other persecutions in history. Uh, I saw people so afraid of how they might lose their life that they even lost opportunities to save other souls. Those are things that we need to recondition ourselves in. And this is what Peter has been doing throughout. We have this difficult challenge of walking a road where on one hand we are called elect exiles, we're not going to join, as he says in chapter 4, verse 4, we're not going to join them in the things that they do of sensuality, etc. But on the other hand, 
We are also those that shine as lights in the world, and we have a mission, and our mission is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who have called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so while I'm not going, we're not going to join them, we're certainly not going to withdraw from them. We're certainly not going to, as he says in chapter in chapter 3 and verse 14, we're not going to fear them, nor are we going to be troubled. I mean, after all, if the Lord tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we're not supposed to be afraid or anxious about our life of what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall put on, why would we be anxious about our life as to whether or not we're going to lose our life, especially lose our life for His cause? And this is what Peter wants to, in the closing part of his letter, and, and chapter 5 is, is more the addendum to, any, to this, but at the closing part of his letter, he wants to give us comfort and hope in the midst of a trial. So read the words with me, if you will, in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice uh, and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or even as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, as you begin with these words, I want you to notice just the fact that what he does in verses 12 through 16 is give us three ways to be comforted during the trial. And then an exhortation of what not to do and what to do in light of the trial. Now, this is really important and and gives us such comfort. But what is surprising about it is, is that when he uses these words, he says, do not be surprised the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And if you're sitting in the audience, we mentioned this in an earlier lesson, but if you're sitting in the audience as the reader is reading this letter to you, and he suddenly mentions a fiery trial that has not yet come, but is about to come upon you, my focus might be more on, oh, what is it going to be? And how bad is this trial going to be? And fiery does not sound real comforting. And yet the whole reason that Peter words it this way is he is trying to give us comfort. And he's trying to prepare us. Preparing for a trial should be a constant part of what is on our minds. How many times does Jesus, when He's talking about coming trials, judgments, destruction of Jerusalem, be sober-minded, be watchful? Those are words that are indicating we need to be prepared. 
And I've watched Christians over and again go through trials in which they were completely unprepared for, and it shook their faith, and it shook their foundation. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know why they were thinking the way they were thinking. I was so fortunate that the first major trial I went through, I had been studying Job. And I knew the book well. And every time I would have one of those I wish I would die feeling, I'd go, well, Job had that. (laughs) Or I can't believe these friends of mine who are uh, uh, saying all these terrible things to me. Well, okay, Job had that. And it wasn't something then that completely shook my faith. In fact, drove me closer to God instead of further away. And that's what happens in a trial. It's going to do one or the other. Either draw you closer to God, or it's going to drive you away. And it is important to prepare. Obviously, books of the Bible like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes are important books to know well, to be prepared. Books like 1 Peter in the New Testament and 2 Peter are important letters to know well, need to be prepared. Now, there's no substitute for going through it. You can be prepared all day long. You go through it, you're still going to rock your world. (laughs) It's still going to just shoot you down. But in the bottom, you're going to go, I know. I know what I need to do here. I need to keep looking for God. So, (coughs) excuse me. So here is a... (coughs) I'm like sucking a spit down your... (laughs) So here is an important first comfort. Don't be surprised. Something strange is not happening to you. As Christians, we ought to know that. We cannot expect to serve Christ and everything's just going to sail along fine. It's not going to work that way. It's not going to work that that way either because people are going to attack us or because God wants it that way. Did you notice the word test? In the text, God is using it to test us. So this comes not just because, oh, just something happened or people got mad because I stood for Christ or people think I'm strange. Don't be surprised. You should not be surprised in any of these things. Like something terribly has gone wrong. I would suggest to you that the better way to respond to a bad trial is shrug your shoulders and say, well, what did you expect? That's what happens. Do you remember Elihu giving his lecture to Job, saying this kind of thing will happen two or three times in a person's life in order to bring his soul back from the pit. Ever since I learned that, I went, "Okay, I think I okay now. I think I have two. Maybe I can die before the third one." <laughs> he did say two or three, so maybe I can escape the third. Maybe death is the third one. I don't know, but you know, you you just kind of you kind of think that. But see, God is using this, and it should not be something like we're thinking it is just terribly wrong. Look at what Jesus says in Luke six: "When woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets." How do you feel when somebody doesn't insult you for? For your faith, or says something nasty to you about it, or or persecute you in some kind of way that'd be worse. Well, well, you really feel bad about that. I don't like that. I don't. I don't like how that feels. And yet, if everybody always talked well about you, you'd you'd be like the false prophets. 
Something's wrong in your life if everybody speaks well about you. That's just not the way this works out. This trial is a test. It is the way God finds out if you pass the test or you fail the test. So when the test comes, stop, sit back and go, okay, wait a minute, this is a test. I always remember as a kid, it would come onto the screen. If you were old enough, and some of you are, that black and white would come up in that crazy pattern, and it would go, bah, bah, and this is a test of the American broadcasting system. <laughs> and if this were a real event, and the atomic bomb was going to go off, get under your desk, yeah, and uh, <laughs> that will protect you. At any rate, that would be this is well. This is this way. It's a test. Yeah, it's a tough test, but it's a test. God tested Abraham. Genesis twenty-two, verse one. And at the end, God said, "Now I know that you will obey me in all things." Well, can't He just look into my heart? No, no. He's going to put you through the test. You have to know where your strength is and you have to pass the test and you pass the test, here's the cool thing you know. If you pass the test, great. You're going to get the reward. You can rejoice because you pass the test. You want to know those things and God is putting us through that so that we know whether we're getting a failing grade or not. Second comfort here is by suffering we share in Christ's suffering. Do you know that? Notice that there in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Um, have, you, have you ever just thought that the purpose for Christ's suffering was because that's what Christ had to do in order to save our sins, you know, save us from sins? That, that, that's, that's why He suffered, right? And yet here He says... You are to share in Christ's sufferings. In fact, uh, in Philippians 3 and verse 10, Paul said that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul's desire was to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, translate visible, in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Here's, here's what's important about this. Nobody's going to see Jesus in you until you are willing to suffer in order for them to live. <clears throat> Religious people are a dime a dozen. People who say they believe in Jesus are a dime a dozen in this country. It's not any big deal. Those of you who have brought somebody to Christ or tried to bring somebody to Christ, you will know the amount of time it takes for you to invest in this person so that they can be saved. It is not as simple as just hurling a bunch of scriptures at them and uh, and just proof texting some things and saying you ought to be baptized, you're trying to make a disciple of Christ. And it means that you sacrifice a great amount of your own time, your own money. You sacrifice your life. You lay it down so that somehow, some way, you can bring this person to Christ. 
I have found over and again uh, Christians and even elders in churches who have no earthly idea how many hours, in some cases hundreds of hours, that are put into saving one soul. Not just before they're baptized, but continuing after they're baptized. And it takes that, and we Christians sometimes get this idea that this is just going to be simple, that we don't have to suffer in trying to get the gospel out. No, you suffer in the sense you die so that life can be in someone else. And Paul says, I got to suffer. I want to learn this. I want to suffer for him. The apostles praised God and were rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer shame for his name when they were beaten in prison in Acts chapter 5. So rejoice. Sharing in Christ's suffering obviously means then we will also share the reward that he has. That's how you connect to Christ. That's how you know you are getting in his sandals, so to speak, and walking the way he walked and living the way he lived and as a disciple and patterning yourself after his example when you're willing to be do the inconvenient thing and sometimes suffer the difficulty that it takes to live and die for someone else to be able to live. It, 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 it takes that much. And I, I would suggest that probably one of the reasons we don't teach or convert as many people as we could or should is because we don't give up enough of our life to invest in somebody else. It takes that investment. That's just the way it is. And then the third thing he says here is blessed you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests up on us. And you see that in verse 14. That is a quotation out of Isaiah chapter 11, 1, verse 1 and 2 that refers to the coming Messiah. The spirit of the Lord shall rest up on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the, the idea here is that when you read Isaiah, one of the things that was really noticeable to me is whatever is said about Jesus and Isaiah is also being said about his disciples. Whether good or bad. If the Messiah was going to go through the cross, the disciples are going to carry a cross. If the Messiah is going to be exalted and and that God's presence and would rest upon them, that's the way it's going to be about Jesus' disciples. What you read about the Messiah and Isaiah is what's going to be happening to you. And so there's an identification here. And the key is God's presence is with us in the trial. What was Job's first response? Where's God? Where is he? Why doesn't he come down? Why doesn't we have a conversation? He's obviously messed up here. Why can't I, have, why can't I tell him about it? I'll never get justice, etc., etc. And at the very end, Job is, God is going... I've been there the whole time. It was not up to you to decide what I should be doing or what how you should handle this. Now there's an exhortation, a warning. Would you notice there in verse 15? Let none of you suffer. And I want you to think about this a second. Do you see some kind of disconnect here? Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or even as a meddler. Now the, the first three of these are are, are something that is... Uh, you could go to prison for. There's really serious sins. Don't be a murderer. Don't be a thief. Don't be an evildoer. Oh, don't even be a meddler. 
What would it, what would that entail? I I immediately thought of how many times we have immediately on them in them in just the spur of the moment taken an opportunity to condemn some outsider's belief on something or lifestyle. I've, I've, in my early years, I saw preachers do it at the back door. First time visitor. Walk out and just clock them. <laughs> just nearly figuratively punch them in the face concerning a, a belief that they have or a church they went to or whatever. Always must get in our minds. A job is to teach them about Jesus, not correct, simply correct something wrong with them. Show them who Jesus is. The wrong will be exposed as you teach them who Jesus is. So this meddler is getting involved in somebody's lifestyle before they're even able to understand why or who Christ is. Don't be a meddler. Don't throw verse grenades at people. Get an opportunity to say, hey, would you like to read the Bible together? And one of the great ways to get an easy Bible study that I know the, the knowledge of this congregation is terrific. An easy Bible study. How, how would you like to read, read one of the Gospels with me? Just read, let's read through it and talk about it together. You, you'll, be, you'll be surprised at how many neighbors will be willing to do that. And just, you know, well, I don't know if I know it very well. Whatever. <laughs> do it and you'll know it better next time. It's just the way it is. Do you think I knew anything when I first started? Goodness. I had to look at my notes the whole time. And, uh, and, and you know how, how, what my percentage of converting people was? Uh, better than it is today, <laughs> in which I don't need notes. It, you, it's the gospel that's going to do the work. It's the word of God that is going to make the difference. The only crime for which we should suffer for is being called a Christian. And by the way, that's your opportunity. When you are spoken against as an evildoer because you are a Christian, that's your opportunity. God just went, waving the flag. That's your opportunity. This is an opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity. Uh, the, the hard part of this in the first century that we often don't realize is being a Christian had become, even though you wouldn't have it on the books yet, being a Christian was a, was a crime. I, I, you know, until recently, I was reading a book just basically about the history of the first century. The word Christian is only used three times in our New Testament. And every time it's used, it's used as a derogatory term. I used to not think that, but I do believe that now. Every time it's a derogatory term. Even if, look where you put the word Christian, in the middle of murderer, thief, and evildoer. Don't do that. But the day's going to come where they're going to arrest you because you're a Christian. And you're going to be lumped together with murderers, thieves, and evildoers. Are we, when we stand for Christ, are there some in America that lump us together with hateful, terrible, evil, terroristic people? Yes, they do. We're getting a little taste of it. If it continues, we'll get a bigger taste of it. Be prepared. That's why Peter wrote because this isn't surprise. This is normal. Historically, this is normal. And we have relaxed too much to not be prepared for this. All right, here's the final verses in this. And this is where I think some of the greatest comfort comes from. 
in verse 17, 18, and 19. And some of this is probably confusing uh, to you as you would read this uh, for the first time there. As you see these words, you notice that he says in verse 17 and 18, first off, the time for judgment is to begin at the household of God. Where does judgment begin? He says it begins with us. Is that a little surprising to you? Judgment begins with the household of God. And then he explains that a little more in verse 18 and says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he's first identifying us as those who are under judgment. And these two phrases are what we have to understand. It's time for judgment to begin. Now, when is it time for judgment to begin? At that point. Peter is saying, you people, judgment is beginning with you at this point of time. Which means it's still going on for us too. Judgment has begun for the people of God and it continues for the people of God. And if it continues for the righteous, his point in verse 18, what's going to happen in verse 17? What's going to happen with, the, with those who do not obey the gospel of God? All right, so here's, you might say, how's that comforting? Well, let's, let's see this. Peter quotes out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you went back to Proverbs 11.31 and read it in your Bible, it would not look like that unless you were reading the Christian Standard Bible. Christian Standard Bible tried to reflect the words of the Greek Old Testament instead of the Hebrew. And so in the Greek Old Testament, as close as you could come would be this. If a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, does that sound a little different than if the righteous are scarcely saved? And when you, when you read the old King James Version, when you read some of those old versions, what you would see is you'd read it and go, I would, I would hear Bible teachers say, well, what that means is, is you and I are going to barely get to heaven. You're just going to scarcely make it over the edge. And if you're just going to barely make it, man, what's going to happen to those bad people? <laughs> well, that's not the message here at all. What he's saying is, if you're going to be saved through this difficulty, through this judgment, if judgment's already begun on you, what's going to take place with those who are unrighteous? So, summarize it a little bit this way. The time of judgment has already begun for the righteous. So think about yourself. The time of judgment has already been begun for you. You are already suffering things that would happen for your particular judgment, for the judgment of righteous people. Some of those things are insults. Some of those things are challenges as to what you're going to put first in your life and whether or not you're going to stand for God or you're going to stand for other things or whether you're going to let your heart be taken away with possessions and pleasures. Whatever it is, the judgment is beginning now for you. It's already begun. The sinner is not pres pre presently suffering for righteousness' sake. You and I are. We're suffering for righteousness' sake. We're going to stand for righteousness, whether, no matter what we have to go through. But ultimately, they will suffer. The judgment for them will come later. The judgment for us has already begun. So since judgment has already begun for us, 
The suffering that we do deal with now is what is separating us. There's the judgment and the pain and the suffering has separated us from the ungodly and the sinner. If we are already suffering judgment and our salvation goes through the judgment that we deal with now, what's going to happen to the ungodly who have never sacrificed themselves for the cause of Christ? That's the idea. In chapter 1 of First Peter, verse 6 and 7, what do, what do trials do? They test the genuineness of your faith. There's that judgment. It's happening now. You're purified like gold and silver going through fire to bring you out on the other side to be glory and honor in the day of Christ. So judgment's already being suffered right now and the rejection by the world is the sign of their future judgment. And that will be done in their day. So this is the way I look at it. Why be afraid of the day of judgment when you're already dealing with your judgment now? This is, you know, every time you go through a hard one, you go, oh, (laughs) that's a piece of cake compared to what the unrighteous are going to receive. My judgment now is what I'm going through. This is just the beginning of that judgment. But the future judgment will be happening to those who do not obey Christ. That is how we rejoice then in verse 13 when he says rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You're able to look at that. The final verse and final comfort that Peter gives is verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to faithful Creator while doing good. I'll suggest to you three phrases there that are, that are very important. First off, those who suffer according to God's will. So next time you're suffering, especially suffering because you're serving Christ and you're standing strong, when you're suffering, you need to understand you can't look around and start blaming all kinds of other people. You can't look around and blame your circumstances. You can't look around and blame. What you're going to do is you're going to say, oh, this is God's will. And if it's God's will that I suffer, then it must be okay. Because He's going to take care of us through that. So first and foremost, Look at suffering at God's will. God wouldn't let you go through it if it were not His will. Secondly, entrust your souls to a faithful Creator. Do you remember at the end of the book of Job when God spoke to Job? So when God began to ask Job questions, what were His questions about? Where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I made this animal or that animal? Where were you when I made a dumb ostrich and just laid his eggs out in the sand and left it there and somehow he survived? Where were you when I did all of these things? Where were you when I put the stars up there? Where were you? And he just keeps asking and asking and asking. And of course, at the end of his first speech, he goes, answer me. And Job says, well, shut my mouth. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I don't, I don't know. And he says, I'm not done. And then he goes on again. And the animal 
world. Talks about all those things. And he gets done. He says, now, you want to answer me? What was the answer? I'm the creator. You have no business questioning me. I've been there all the time for you. I never left you. I was always there. I was working this out for your benefit, for my cause and my glory and your benefit to bring you to glory. Who do you think you are going around screaming at me or even just screaming about, woe is me, look at this. This is not fair. Of course it's not fair. As we tell our children all the time, get used to it. Life isn't fair. But then we turn around and do the same thing. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. He made you. He is your father. He is going to take care of you. And finally, notice those words. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Have you ever in the midst of a really bad trial kept doing good? Usually in a really bad trial, we curl up in a ball and we go, help, help, help. Somebody help me. Somebody help me. Yeah, that's the natural thing. I've done it. You've done it. He says, I want you to keep doing good. You're in agony. You're in pain. You want the pain to cease. But here's what you need to keep doing. Keep doing good. It'll not only help you through the pain, but it'll glorify God. Keep doing good. That is the picture here. Therefore, he says at the beginning of verse 19, that is the conclusion of his whole book, his whole letter. Therefore, in all of these things, here's how you're going to handle this. You're going to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while still doing good. That's how you handle the trial. And it's a great, great lesson. When you suffer, you're blessed, not cursed. You are blessed. Let's take a little 10-minute break.